Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have a bunch of stuff to talk about. First, we have confirmation that Linux Mint is indeed working on Wayland support for their Cinnamon desktop, although it's not coming for a long while. We also have some contestations and a complaint about YouTube's adblock blocker, at least in the EU. We have Fedora 39 being delayed twice, we have OpenSUSE working on a new logo, we have a new accessibility framework being worked on uh, by the GNOME team, but it looks like it's gonna be a universal Linux desktop project, and a lot more. So, as always, all the links I use to make this uh, podcast are in the show notes, and all the links you can use to support the show are in the show notes as well. So, let's get started. So, if you use Linux Mint or just the Cinnamon desktop on another distro, or if you're not currently using it but you wish you could using Wayland, well, you're probably going to be happy with these news. The Linux Mint team published their monthly update blog post in which they confirmed that they are working on adding Wayland support for the Cinnamon desktop. So a first experimental session using Wayland will be provided with Mint 21.3 apparently before the end of the year. Now X11 will still be the default in this release and probably throughout the whole Linux Mint 22 cycle, which will be basically a period of two years while Mint is based on Ubuntu 24.04. So technically the only moment where Wayland would become the default on Linux Mint and the default for the Cinnamon desktop would be with Mint 23, so with something like Ubuntu 26.04, so in 2026, which is a long way away. So Cinnamon 6 will be the first release of the desktop to have these first bricks of Wayland support, this first experimental session, and as I said, it should release before the end of the year. Other distributions will be able to take advantage of this as well, although if Mint doesn't feel like their Wayland session is good enough to be included as the default, I'm pretty sure stuff like Ubuntu Cinnamon or, or Arch with Cinnamon or any other distro that might want to ship Cinnamon would not do it either. Uh, if you want to follow along uh, what the Mint team has been working on and what issues remain for Wayland, uh, there's a Trello board, which is sort of unfortunate because as far as I know, Trello is not open source and also you need to connect with, you need to log in with an account to be able to see the issues. I wish they had used like a, a more open tool than this, uh, but yeah, at least you can look at the issues and if you're interested in helping them fix them, you can also do just that. So they're giving themselves two years to fix all those Wayland-related issues, which, I mean, if you're just starting on Wayland, two years is not that bad, because if you count the time it took for GNOME to be fully Wayland-ready, which I would consider it now, uh, it was more than two years. And Plasma also spent more than two years trying to build a usable Wayland session, and the first really complete implementation was maybe 5.27, and Plasma 6 will be really the Plasma desktop that implements Wayland as the default, as the really solid option. So two years, it seems like a lot because, well, it pushes the Wayland release, well, Wayland compatible release of Cinnamon to 2026, but two years is not that bad uh, to implement a fully working Wayland session. 
They also said that they will keep supporting X11 even after the release uh, of the Wayland native Cinnamon Session. Although for how long, we don't really know. Probably for as long as X11 is not fully deprecated or archived or anything. And in other Linux Mint news, not related to Wayland this time, they now have an unstable Linux Mint version for people who want to test the various releases and basically do some beta testing before the official launch. Uh, this release is codenamed Romeo and you can now enable it in the software sources of Mint. There's a little checkbox you can turn on to get the unstable packages. Of course, it's not stable, it shouldn't be used in production, but if you have a spare computer and you like to live on the edge on spare devices, then you can and you can better help test and report issues uh, against Linux Mint. And why is it called Romeo? Well, as always, it's a sort of weird convoluted explanation. Uh, feels kind of forced, uh, but that's mostly the case with uh, Linux code names. Basically, Mint releases have names that are generally associated with women, and as the developers put it, there's always a Romeo that can potentially break their heart. In this case, quite literally, because the Romeo release of Mint can break your system. Now, if you use YouTube, you might have noticed that YouTube is kind of testing a new way to prevent you from using an ad blocker. Uh, it's not fully deployed, not everyone will see it just yet, but what you what you can see <laughs> if you are really unlucky uh, and you use an ad blocker is a little pop up telling you, okay, you're blocking our video, you're blocking our ads. Uh, well, if you don't disable your ad blocker, you have three videos you can watch. After that, you're not going to be able to watch videos until you disable your ad blocker or you're subscribed to YouTube Premium. This ad block blocker is now uh, not going unchallenged. There's a privacy advocate who filed a complaint with the Irish Data Protection Commission. Now, the reason they filed the complaint against the Irish Data Protection Commission is because mostly all big tech companies in the EU are based in Ireland because they get pretty big tax breaks uh, when they are uh, based there. So that's the relevant commission to, to address your problems to if you have an issue with big tech in the EU. So the complaint's basis is that Google doesn't ask for the user's consent for checking with their browser if they're actually using an ad blocker or not. So the question they submitted to the Irish Data Protection Commission and to the European Commission as a whole is whether a website should obtain the user's consent before interrogating their browser on its capabilities or its extensions. And it looks like the European Commission answered positively and said that yes, the website should get consent and it's sort of a breach of privacy to just grab that information without asking. The Irish Data Protection Commission also seems to not disagree with the issue. They reached out to YouTube and they're gonna keep the person posted basically. The website, uh, YouTube in this case, added to their terms of service that using an ad blocker violates the terms of service. So basically, you're technically not allowed to use YouTube using an ad blocker. But it looks like this would not be considered a valid clause to the terms and service, to the, to the use conditions of YouTube, because in the EU, citizens have a right to use their technical equipment as they like. The websites and the programs you use are not supposed to impose restrictions on how exactly you can use your device. 
and these checks to see if you're using an ad blocker and the fact that using an ad blocker would be considered violating the terms of service apparently would violate this right and would not really be legal. So we're gonna have to see where it goes. If it ends up preventing YouTube from blocking ad blockers or not, I am pretty sure this is going to take ages. If it's if if this behavior from YouTube is considered illegal or, or is considered con not conformant to the various EU privacy laws, it will probably be stopped only in the EU. I'm pretty sure YouTube will keep doing it in other countries. And I'm also sure that in the EU, YouTube will find another way, another less invasive way to do the exact same thing. But at least it makes these changes, blocking ad blockers, which seem to be very unpopular with a lot of people, it makes those changes a bit less likely to stick, which is very nice. Because as much as I like getting ad revenue from my YouTube channel, which is my main job, I also don't think people should be forced to watch ads if they don't want to. It's your computer, it's your time, it's your experience, and you should be allowed uh, to, to use an ad blocker if you want. You just know that, yes, it hurts the website you're watching because you're depriving them from the revenue you should give them because that's their way of financing, and you're depriving the creator of some revenue because that's their way of financing the work that they do to create those videos, but it's still your choice, and you shouldn't be forced to sit through ads, especially when the number of ads is getting so high, when it's getting harder to skip them, and when they're just so annoying and privacy invasive that it's becoming a real problem. And uh, okay, it's a bit ironic to slot in that sponsor slot right now, but that's what I'm gonna do. Speaking of ads, we have a sponsor for this podcast episode and it's Thunderbird. But don't worry, it's actually a very, very good sponsor. You probably know about Thunderbird. You probably even likely used it in the past or use it right now. It's a fantastic email, calendar, contacts, to-do list, basically your whole personal information management suite. And it's been completely revamped with the latest version, which means that the old interface is now way, way, way better. Uh, you can still use the old interface if you want because it's completely configurable, but you also have a lot of new options to, to work with the information density, to display the various panels that you want, the, the information that you like. You can slot every button you want in the header bar for every single module, so you can have different buttons for email, for calendar, for contacts. It still supports tabs, it still has a huge library of extensions and add-ons to really enrich the experience and make it actually work like you want. And they're also working on an Android app and also an iOS app, although this one is not as far along as the Android client. So you'll be able to basically sync everything, your organization, your folders, your tags, maybe even some extensions between various clients, the desktop line, the Android and the iOS app in the future. So it's a really, really solid option. It's become my only uh, email app right now. It replaced a Geary, Gnome Calendar. And now that I moved to KDE, I didn't even look at Kmail or Calendar because they have just not as solid as Thunderbird these days. So if you gave a shot to Thunderbird in the past, if you want to maybe give a shot to the new interface, I left a link uh, to download it, to download the new client right in the show notes. I highly encourage you to give it a shot. It's really, really good. Now let's talk Linux distros. If you were eagerly awaiting the release of Fedora 39 to benefit from a newer kernel, newer drivers, GNOME 45, better Wayland support and more, 
then you will have to be a bit more patient unless you want to jump in a beta. The release was planned for this week on the 24th of October, but it's now been pushed as is often the case with Fedora. Basically every release I've seen since I started this channel, I think, has been pushed at least once compared to the initial release date. It's not a big issue, but yeah, it should now be released next week on the 31st, but wait, no, it's been pushed for another week again, and it is now planned for November the 7th. So it's not a big delay, it's like one and a half weeks that you're gonna have to wait. Now the reason behind that, as always, is a bunch of blocking bugs that they hadn't detected before, some, some last minute issues that they really wanted to fix before they pushed the new version out. Uh, the four active blockers remaining are first a mutter problem that breaks the net install. Uh, there's also a problem with EFI that prevents the distro from booting on certain motherboards. And there are also two Raspberry Pi 4 related problems that make it virtually impossible to install Fedora 39 on this hardware. So they want to fix those four little issues, well, major issues because they're kind of preventing you from installing the distro and would probably break your system if you upgraded uh, to Fedora 39 on systems that are broken. Uh, so they want to fix that. It's normal. Uh, it's not a big issue. But yeah, I just wanted to let people know that yes, yes, it was supposed to release this week, but it hasn't. Uh, it's not a long wait. It's not unusual to see. And if you're waiting for Fedora 39, I will have a treat next week if the stars align and packages are delivered correctly. Uh, I'll have a look at what's new in Fedora 39, but usually I don't make reviews for updates to Fedora because I already make a video about the new version of GNOME. And in terms of the desktop experience, Fedora generally doesn't change virtually anything compared to the default GNOME release. So it's not super interesting. But now there's going to be an interesting thing added on top of that, which is the Fedora Slimbook, which is the official Fedora laptop. Uh, it's a very, very nice device that ships with Fedora pre-installed. If you buy it, you also support the Fedora project and the GNOME project. So I'll look at this device and at Fedora 39 in the same package and the same video. So subscribe to the YouTube channel if you want to see that. If you didn't know, I have a YouTube channel. That's sort of the main thing I do uh, on top of this podcast. Now, still on the topic of Linux distributions, it looks like OpenSUSE will get rid of their green chameleon that served as their logo for a while now. Uh, the distro and the whole OpenSUSE community around it announced a contest to help design a fresh new logo for the community for OpenSUSE, but also for all OpenSUSE variants, uh, which include Tumbleweed, that's their, their rolling release model, uh, which are reviewed on the channel. There's Leap, which is the fixed release, sort of a, a derivative or a copy of uh, SUSE Linux Enterprise. And there's also Slow Roll, which is a relatively new one. It's basically Tumbleweed, but with a slower update cycle, more stable, more, te more tested. So it's still a rolling release, but you're not getting as bleeding edge packages as on Tumbleweed. Now, the reason behind the change in the logo is that first, apparently OpenSUSE experienced a surge in user numbers in recent years and an expansion in terms of the number of variants of the distro they offer. A few years ago, they only had OpenSUSE, that it was Leap, it was the fixed release, the same sort of model as with Ubuntu or Fedora, one release every fixed number of months. But they 
improved on this. They now have more offerings, and with more offerings, they got more users. And they sort of want to unify the OpenSUSE brand and products under a new logo, a new visual umbrella. And second, they also want to differentiate themselves from SUSE Linux's old logo to really mark the difference between the commercial offering and the open source distributions. And finally, the current logo mixes an image and text, which means that at small sizes, the text becomes sort of illegible. Uh, the typeface is not very nice. It, it's, it's just a bit old. So if you're an artist and if you have ideas to revamp this logo, you can help and you can offer a concept for the logo for the whole project and all its various derivative distros. There are a few specifications like you that you have to follow, like using the SUSE green color as the primary color, not using third-party material, and a few other common sense related things. They didn't say they didn't want any AI-generated art, so if you like that, you probably can offer a, a submission with that. Personally, I was never a big fan of the green chameleon logo. It's very cute, but it's also sort of derpy, and it doesn't really look like a complete professional offering to me. I don't know, it, it never really felt that that representative of anything. I guess a refresh wouldn't hurt, as long as it doesn't completely transform the brand. Like, the, the green reptile is pretty recognizable. Maybe it just it should just be more stylized without the name of the distro. Maybe it's just something like what they use for the KDE Plasma menu on, on OpenSUSE KDE would be good enough. Like it's a stylized representation of, of the head of the chameleon. You're not diluting the brand, but at the same time, you're not having like a full drawing of something, which I think is better. Now, speaking of desktops, uh, we have first a big update on KDE and Plasma 6. We didn't have an update last week because they didn't publish any news on their progress, but now there's a recap of what's happened uh, during the past two weeks. So first, they have implemented color profiles on a per-screen basis, which means that you can have a different ICC color profile on every single display that you use. This only works with Wayland. It also works with, uh, with color pickers uh, because sometimes when you use a, a color profile, if it's badly implemented, you pick a color on screen, but it's gonna pick the color modified by your color profile. So it's not the exact color that was intended to be displayed. So now this is supported on Wayland only. It will be exported to X Wayland in the future and you can't really expect it to work on X11 at all because no one develops anything for X11. Uh, the Plasma developers also added back the good old desktop cube effect. If you were around for the Compies days of old, uh, you know that this was a, a really nice effect that you could achieve on virtually every Linux desktop, and now it's back on KDE, which is pretty fun. You, you'll need to install the KDE Plasma add-ons package to get it, but that's pretty cool. The screenshot tool got a little option so you can take screenshots of various windows without the shadows under the window if you want to use that somewhere and you don't want shadows. Uh, and they also worked on Discover, which is their app store. It got a bunch of improvements. Stuff should be better aligned in the various pages and lists. They fixed how information is displayed for Flatpak apps. They improved the app details page with a better screenshot viewer that looks a bit better than how it used to. Basically, Discover was really good, but it was a bit lacking in the visual department. It 
looked very utilitarian and I think they're trying to make it a little bit more appealing so you actually want to discover applications which is like the name of the app. And they also added some styling fixes here and there all around the desktop to make all the settings dialogues look the same no matter the framework they use whether it's using Qt widgets or Kirigami or anything else. So that's always much better to have a sort of a unified look. And they fixed a lot of bugs in the past two weeks. 220, which is like a lot. And I know a lot of people look at these number of bugs and say, oh wow, KDE is super buggy. This includes bugs that are introduced by the development process of Plasma 6. It's not just there were 220 bugs left in KDE that they had to fix. It's also bugs and issues in the current development process, which is normal. Like, you're supposed to have bugs when you're writing new software. Now, on the GNOME side, uh, there's a bit less to talk about. They introduced a new website to present desktop portals to developers. Desktop portals being sort of this interface letting applications communicate with each other, better integrate with your desktop of choice, and sort of plugging in the gaps with the new Linux model with the Sandbox, Flatpak apps, Wayland, and stuff like that. So there's a new website so developers can learn more about it and implement them correctly in their apps. They added a Python support to GNOME Workbench, which is the app that lets you experiment with GNOME technologies and, and prototype your own app development. Uh, there's also a new release of Celeste, which is a file sync program. It can connect to Nextcloud, to Google Drive, to Dropbox, pCloud, OwnCloud, and a lot more. And the new update makes it possible to connect to Proton Drive as well. It's a GTK app. It's available on FlatHub and the Snap Store if you're on Ubuntu. And the GNOME Foundation also planned a meet and greet with their new executive director. So you can submit your questions until November 7th and she will actually answer, well, some of the questions I'm pretty sure they're going to filter uh, because, well, the nomination of this new executive director hasn't been received very well by some people. So they're probably going to get some hate because people are dumb, I guess. Now, hopefully this meet and greet will alleviate some concerns that some people seem to have with the new nomination, namely that she doesn't have open source experience or software experience. Still, it's good to see some more work on Plasma 6 and on making the various desktop-related technologies more accessible to developers, so cool updates all around. And speaking of Linux desktop technologies, we're slowly getting our ducks in a row to move to a new stack, like Flatpak, Sandboxed Applications, Wayland. It's all sort of slotting in together bit by bit, but there's one duck that has sat abandoned, and that's accessibility. When you use X11, accessibility features are, let's say, relatively easy to do. I'm, say, I'm saying relatively easy because a lot of people still don't add them. Uh, because X11 doesn't really have a good security model. So it's pretty easy to just inject code in various processes and like slot some stuff on top of apps to add accessibility. But Wayland and sandboxed apps make it a lot harder. And so there is a new accessibility framework being worked on. It's being started by a person joining the GNOME accessibility team, but from what I gather from their blog post, it's going to be developed as a new framework that should be usable by every desktop, not just GNOME. And so the basic design that they're working on is taking a page from the book of web browsers like Chromium, because web browsers 
they sort of work like what we're trying to move to on Linux, which is they have a main process and then every single tab or website, which could be linked to running different apps on a desktop, you're running different websites on a browser, every single tab has its own sandboxed process, which also makes it harder to implement accessibility features. And the way these browsers work is that they have a push-based architecture. The, the web browser builds an accessibility tree for every single one of its websites, and it pushes it to the main web browser process where this process can then access it and use it to display accessibility features or to use a screen reader and stuff like that. That's what the GNOME accessibility team wants to do as well. So they don't have to get applications or, or just the general desktop don't need the capability of accessing inside of an app's process and reading the accessibility tree. The accessibility tree is pushed by the app and it's then accessed by the accessibility API, which can then interact with it and use it to have, I don't know, an on-screen keyboard, a screen reader, or every other accessibility feature that you might want. So it doesn't look like it's going to revamp the whole thing. The fundamentals are still there. It's still based on a tree of information that the accessibility API will use. So developers can expect the current work that they've done on accessibility to still be relevant. And they will be experimenting with a new prototype for this new architecture over the coming year. So hopefully it will solve the accessibility issues we have with the new Linux desktop stack. And let's be honest, the accessibility issues we've had on the Linux desktop for a while. Even using X11, accessibility on Linux has never been the best. Uh, there are a lot more tools available for proprietary operating systems than for Linux, uh, for people who have like vision impairment or, or motricity problems, or it's we're just not the best operating system uh, for accessibility. So hopefully having one final API that works with the new stack, with the old stack, and that is like based on the model developers understand and know, like the stuff that is used on web browsers is probably a good thing. Hopefully it's going to fix the issue for good. Uh, and hopefully they're going to develop it in a desktop agnostic way because sometimes GNOME doesn't think about standards and sort of tend to work on defining their own standard, whether people like it or not. So hopefully it will be a collaborative effort so app developers don't have to implement like one accessibility API for KDE, one for GNOME, one for other desktops. I really hope this is going to be adopted by the wider Linux desktop so we can finally solve the problem. Now, just a little tidbit of information. Uh, you might have heard uh, in one of my previous podcasts that the Linux kernel LTS versions will be moving from a support window of six years to two years only. And there were questions on how this would affect LTS distros like Ubuntu LTS because they used to be supported for five to 10 years sometimes and having a kernel that only lasts for two years could be a problem. Ubuntu notably announced that they would keep supporting their LTS releases for up to 10 years. Basically what they'll do is that you'll get your Ubuntu LTS distro, you'll get the LTS kernel at the time it's released, 
and every two years they're gonna release their updates to the LTS kernel. It will probably require a bit more work on their end to retest the system extensively with each new LTS kernel, especially since they said that they will provide security updates for the LTS kernels for five years. So even after the Linux developers have moved on from an older LTS kernel after its two year support window, apparently the Ubuntu developers will keep supplying it with probably backports of security fixes uh, at least for three more years than what the official Linux maintenance window is. And they will also add the ability to get 10 years of support for a specific kernel version with their expanded security maintenance program. I'm guessing this one is part of like the Ubuntu Advantage or something like the commercial offering that you can get with Ubuntu. I would expect most enterprise distros like SUSE Linux Enterprise, Red Hat Enterprise Linux and stuff like that to also offer this type of service. Two years is fine for a workstation, a desktop or a laptop. You are going to want to get the kernel updates, but for servers, some appliances, you definitely don't want to be updating your kernel every two years because, well, sometimes kernels drop support for older hardware and you don't want to be faced with that problem. So it's good that LTS distros still provide updates uh, to LTS kernels, even though it means they're going to have to spend a bit more time doing so uh, than they did previously. Now we have the usual roundup of performance improvements to the Linux kernel and various drivers. We're going to start with some GNOME stuff. Uh, they have implemented a first prototype for zero copy support for dedicated GPUs in Mutter, which is the GNOME compositor. Basically, if you don't know what that means, uh, you can, well, with this prototype, you can pass through what the dedicated GPU renders to the integrated GPU that is used to power a display without having to copy the information from one GPU's buffer to the other. Uh, so this greatly reduces latency in between stuff. If you've ever used a hybrid graphics laptop, for example, you plug in your display to one port that is powered by the Intel GPU, for example, and your NVIDIA GPU is rendering an application, you're gonna see that everything that is rendered with the NVIDIA GPU, at least on Linux, is going to be displayed with notable latency on your monitor because, well, the NVIDIA GPU is rendering the thing and then it's passing the resultant images to the Intel GPU, which then displays it onto your monitor. This requires copying the information from one buffer to the other, and it means latency, lag, and generally pretty bad performance. I had this issue on my own laptop uh, when I used the Thunderbolt port as the display out to my monitor, and when, for example, trying to edit a video using Resolve, uh, the video is recorded at 50 FPS, but it was only displayed at like 24, 26 FPS on the display because, well, there's copy needed between buffers. This will no longer be a problem on GNOME with this prototype. Latency went from 6.9 milliseconds to 0.8, which is a sizable reduction. But for now, these patches are only working for the nouveau NVIDIA drivers. The method that they use apparently might not work for AMD or Intel dedicated GPUs because they do not work in the same way. So you're gonna get a lot of performance on GNOME when using hybrid graphics devices with NVIDIA GPUs if you use Nuvo. There's no telling yet if it's gonna work with the NVIDIA proprietary drivers. From what I gathered from the article, yes, it's sort of the goal, but it's not announced. 
I guess most hybrid graphics devices for now use NVIDIA GPU, so you're still supporting the majority use case, but it would be nice if it could work with every dedicated GPU vendor, but yeah, they never work in the same way. Now we also have the release of the Mesa drivers version 23.3, or at least their first release candidate, which means that it's really, really close. Uh, it should release before the end of November. Uh, this new version brings a lot of Vulkan improvements for the AMD drivers. There's Raspberry Pi 5 support as well, and a lot of work in the Intel Arc drivers for much, much better performance. It also brings Rust ICL to bring OpenCL support in a more modern way. There's also Zinc for bringing OpenGL support to devices that only have Vulkan drivers. And the Azahi graphics drivers have also been much improved in this release. So as I said, all of this should land before the end of November, provided your distro actually ships updates to the Mesa drivers. Uh, but we can expect some really nice performance improvements for those of us that use GPUs with open source drivers, which is my case uh, on the Steam Deck and on my SteamOS console. Hopefully this is gonna net me a few more frames per second when I'm gaming, so I'll keep an eye on this. Now, this is not a performance improvement specifically, but the latest framework laptop using an AMD CPU now correctly works with Linux thanks to a new BIOS update. There was a BIOS regression for the CPU that they use, it's a Ryzen 7 7840U, and it created problems with the integrated GPU and the AMD GPU drivers, so they released a BIOS update, which you can flash using firmware update, FWUPD, uh, which should make all of these laptops work nicely with any Linux distro. Now, of course, you're gonna have to install a distro first to run firmware updates, and so you're gonna have to run it with no mode set, uh, so it sort of bypasses the AMD GPU graphics drivers problem, but then it's just one command line to update the BIOS, uh, you don't have to copy a BIOS file to a USB key, boot from that, open the UEFI settings, whatever. It's super easy on Linux to flash the BIOS if the vendor actually supports uh, the Linux firmware vendor service, which Framework does. So yeah, pretty easy update. And now we have this super modular and repairable laptop working nicely under Linux. And we also have some nice more security vulnerabilities for X11 and X Wayland. Uh, this comes after there were already two security vulnerabilities dated back from 1988. And so there's three more. They're already fixed. Uh, your distro should offer a, an update to X11 and X Wayland. Uh, but yeah, security vulnerabilities, they happen to every project. But not all projects have flaws that date almost 40 years and yeah, there's still some people around to fix them on X11, but I don't know for how long uh, this is going to be the case. Now one little tidbit about uh, privacy, it looks like the Brave browser isn't that respectful of their users after all. Uh, Brave is a browser that prides itself on privacy, on giving users control over how they use the internet. But it turns out they've been installing their VPN services on user devices without asking them if they wanted to get those services. And this has been going on since 2022. Now, of course, this is only on Windows because on Linux you can't really install multiple apps with one single package or application. Well, you could if you ship them in just one app, but basically the user would know about it. Uh, on Windows, basically you install Brave and then it also installs Brave VPN and Brave Firewall as well. Uh, those are two paid services. 
and users are never asked uh, if they want to install them, if they even wanted to download them, and it sort of feels malware-y and underhanded because, well, you don't install software that the user hasn't asked for. It's sort of reminiscent of the olden days where you downloaded an installer from the internet for a Windows app and then you had to uncheck 20 different checkboxes to avoid installing various browser toolbars and stuff like that. It's exactly the same behavior and it really sucks, especially from a company that is basically basing their whole marketing spiel on the fact that they're private and that they respect their users. Um, not asking for consent uh, before installing something is not very respectful. Uh, so Brave's vice president of engineering acknowledged the problem. They said that they would move the install of the VPN to after its first use, so post-purchase, which is better. And this is how it should have been since the beginning. It's really weird that they're forcing the install of this. Uh, it's not a giant issue because, well, it's only on Windows, so it doesn't really affect a lot of us. And also, well, it's just a program that you don't have to launch. But still, it if they've done that, it makes them look like they could have installed other things without the user's knowledge. And it's just not a good look. That That's not what you want when you're a company basing your whole marketing on privacy and, and respect uh, for your users. Okay, and as usual, we're gonna finish this episode with the gaming news. So first, we've got the release of uh, Steam VR 2.0, the stable release. It brings the latest Steam client and features to the Steam VR platform. There's a revamped keyboard that is easier to use. There's Steam Chat, there's Steam Voice Chat baked in, and they also completely revamped the whole store experience. Uh, so it's way better to buy games when you're actually in the VR space. Uh, you also now get access to your notifications in a more easy fashion. And the interface looks like it took some big design cues from the Steam Deck and the newer Steam Client's uh, interface. It's the same sort of theme and look with the white and deep blue or deep dark black. It looks really good. And there are also a bunch of small bug fixes and changes, including some Linux-specific ones uh, to move to the latest Steam Linux runtime, which should fix a bunch of issues with VR. So Steam VR 2.0 releasing is probably an indication that Valve is actually working on a new Steam VR device. Uh, there have been rumors with new code names appearing in various AMD drivers and stuff like that uh, for the Linux kernel and for the Mesa drivers. So we're probably going to see at some point a, a replacement for the Valve Index or maybe something new entirely but they wouldn't just release an update to their Steam VR platform if they just wanted to keep selling the Valve Index. They're obviously going to want to sell something new in that space. And I will be here for it because now that I have a sufficiently powerful PC to actually do VR and that this PC is in my living room where I actually have the space to do VR, I would be very interested to see how well this could work. Uh, and even better if it's a standalone device and not something that you have to plug into your PC. But yeah, I'm not holding out my breath for this. Now, there were also updates to the Steam Desktop client and to SteamOS for the Steam Deck. Uh, these update notes are extremely long. There are a lot of bug fixes and improvements uh, for remote play, for Steam input and more. There are also a bunch of Linux-specific fixes. Notably for accessibility, for improving screen reader support, and for fixing the in-game overlay keyboard input in GNOME. Uh, 
So it looks good, big, big updates. I can't really cover every single change because those are very, very long release notes. I left links to all these changes in the show notes if you want to learn more about them. Now, there was also the x.org developer conference taking place recently, and there was a talk on the ongoing work to support Wayland natively under Wine. Uh, obviously, they explained why they are doing this work, which is, well, to avoid having to rely on X Wayland, because for now, if you want to run a game on Wayland and Proton or Wine, you're gonna have to rely on X Wayland, so you're basically running an X server inside of Wayland, which means a double API translation and worse performance. Even though the performance hit isn't that huge, but it's still there. Now, apparently Google has been sponsoring some of this work to bring Wine uh, natively to Wayland, probably because Chrome OS uses Wayland, as far as I know, and Steam is coming to that specific operating system, so they probably want to help making sure that games run as best as possible on Chromebooks and Chrome OS as well. But yeah, whatever the reason, it's good to have some financial backing from a deep-pocketed company. So hopefully this means that Wayland support for Wine will be coming soon, and that's gonna be one big barrier lifted, especially if desktop environments can finally ship the allow screen tearing property for their window managers so people can actually game without being forced to use vSync. And the final piece of news we have is about emulation, notably the 3DS emulation, the Nintendo 3DS. You might be familiar with the Citra or Citra, I don't know, Citra emulator. After their recent move to using Vulkan, they're also uh, working on performance optimization specifically for Linux and the Steam Deck. And their latest development release seems to give a 20 to 30% performance improvement on Linux, which is sure to please a lot of people who are emulating uh, 3DS games on their devices, especially the Steam Deck, because, well, the, the 3DS is a handheld and the Steam Deck is as well. Me personally, I completely missed the whole 3DS era. I never owned a DS, DSi, DS Lite, 3DS, whatever. I never had any of these consoles, so I have zero nostalgia for that, and I don't really need to emulate those, but for people who do, it's really cool to see a lot of work being focused on that. I think Linux is basically the platform for emulation these days. The major improvements you're seeing are always for Linux, for most emulators, and it's really, really cool. So this will conclude this podcast, everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to dive deeper into any single one of these topics, all the links are in the show notes. If you want to support the show financially to make sure it keeps happening, you can also do that. There are plenty of links in the show notes as well. And if you want to check out our sponsor, Thunderbird, there's also a link for that in the show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.